Hello, and welcome to the official podcast of Bishop Malcolm Smith. These teachings are recorded live each week and provided not only here on the podcast, but at youtube.com. Simply go to youtube.com and look for Malcolm Smith webinars in the search engine there. We also want to invite you to go to www.malcolmsmith.org. There you will find other teachings by Malcolm, including books, videos, and MP3 downloads. And now, with this week's teaching, Bishop Malcolm Smith. The Lord be with you, everyone. And before we come to what I want to share, let me again remind you of the retreat that we are having in San Antonio the first weekend of of December. It's our annual retreat, and it is a wonderful time of fellowship with persons all hungry and seeking further understanding of the grace of God, the love of God, and we shall be teaching. And, of course, when you're, you're in one place at one time, I mean, you go to the hotel, the doors are locked behind you, and here we are together for the weekend and we are looking at what dominates the scripture it's in the first chapter of Genesis and then it's picked up again in the New Testament and it's peppered and salted all the way through the Old Testament which is entering into which speaks of our participation our experience entering into the rest of God God is at total rest And we are called to live our very active lives from his rest. Okay, it's our retreat. And you can call the office and become part of that. But you'd better hurry because we're filling up. Okay? And then secondly, and very quickly, because it only concerns those who may be in the San Antonio, Texas area, that we now have our Sunday services in San Antonio. For many reasons, we have moved the Sunday service from Bandera out in the hills, and we are now meeting in a building that's kindly loaned to us for the present time, which is the Vineyard Church. They've loaned it to us after their service, so ours will be at 1.30 in the afternoon on Sunday, and it is on Bandera Road at Eckhart. And it's in the corner of the shopping center, and that's in the north northwest area of San Antonio. Okay, enough. I want to speak a while, meditate together on Luke chapter 15, which, if you've been around me for long, you know this is my life chapter. It's guided my life for these 60 years. And in verse 8, Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one, does not, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. 
In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Okay, well, I, I have spent a life talking about the prodigal son, which is the next parable after this. I've also spent quite a bit of time on the lost sheep, which is the first parable of the chapter. And I have dipped my toes into this one. And I've been drawn back to it. And, and so I want to talk about this woman that lost a coin and about the coin that was lost and about her finding it and what happened next. The lost coin. Um, you might remember why Jesus gave these three or four parables that he did. It was in response. He just didn't come up with the parables. It was a response to a certain attitude of the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, you remember, were the very zealous but highly religious persons of the day. They were a cult within Judaism, and they were the persons with the greatest enthusiasm and zeal for not only keeping the law of God, but also of inventing many, 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 many others. Uh, it, it, they, theirs was a zeal of performance, a zeal to try to be better than everybody and convince God they were lovable. They were among the most miserable people in Israel, and when they saw Jesus sitting and eating with what the scripture calls tax collectors and sinners. The tax collectors were the betrayers of their people. They were Jews that had gone over to the Roman army of occupation and were now paid very well by the Romans to collect the taxes from their own people. And so, therefore, the Jewish people hated them with, with extreme despising, spitting at them in the street, not even putting their hand on the same table as they... they well, Jesus was eating with such that were counted, and in many persons' mind today, would be the scum of the earth. These were the very rich people in town, paid well by the Romans and had added to the taxes for their own pockets, hated, rich, lived in the great mansions, but were more looked upon as a sort of mafia, that it, pity help you if you tried to get around them the tax collectors and Jesus was eating with them and eating in those days and in much of the third world today was an act of covenant Jesus was sitting at table and eating from the same food as these people which says I am in a covenant bond of friendship I am with you I affirm you I'm in solidarity with you that, you, you understand what Jesus was doing was mind-blowing to any culture at any time. This was not some, what could I say, gaffe uh, of a rather compassionate chap. 
Jesus knew how the people felt about the tax collectors. He knew that if he talked to one, it would be a scandal. But to eat with them went far beyond all scandal. This, this was not, I say, just a gaffe, and he's, he can apologize. This, as far as observers were concerned, would be the end of all that he was trying to do. Even peasants, even those who liked him, would say, this is too much, this is, we, we can't go along with this. And it was the Pharisees who added their venom as they sat, stood and watched him sitting with these men and they're grumbling, you know, they've got that look of horror on their face but you can also hear their delight that they've now caught him sitting with tax collectors. That's the end of him. Any holy man would never be seen near a tax collector. Well, you see, Jesus is God from God. He is Son of God who has entered into our humanity. And now, as fully human, without ceasing to be fully God, He, in our world, with our events of the world and relationships of the world, he is going to reveal to us the heart of God. God is explaining God. God sits with us and says, you're not going to believe this, but if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've heard me, you've heard him. I am the perfect revelation of who he is. So therefore, when he sits with the tax collectors, you hear what he's saying. He is saying that God the Father and Son and Holy Spirit do not join you in damning these men and cutting them off and spitting in their face. No, he doesn't. He sits with them at table and says, in effect, I love you and I am committed to you to bring you out of the darkness that you're in. It's shocking. God himself is a scandal to human thinking that he would do things like this. And to explain to these people who watch in horror at what he's doing, he tells these parables. And he's talking to the tax collectors. I mean, he's sitting at the table with them. But at the same time, and maybe more importantly, he is speaking to the Pharisees who are watching and to the peasants, the crowd, looking in aghast at them. And he's explaining, this is how God sees you all. And this was the second parable. It's about the coin that a woman lost, the coin. Now, there's a little bit of, um, well, it's not mystery, but interest here. Because the little silver coin, the original language makes it plain that it had very, very, very little value. It was a little coin. Um, and that, that, that causes questions to me anyway. Uh, she, she seemed to get so excited uh, 
with having found the coin. Um, and if it was of such little value, then why was she so excited? You, you understand me. You see, in those days, if a man had any money at all, you'd find it on the person of his wife. The wife carried their assets and their bank account on her person. So the coins would be attached to her. They would have been turned into jewelry. And so the woman revealed the wealth of her husband by what was hanging on her person or the, the necklaces and the earrings and so on. But as I say, that's their wealth. This, this would hardly be counted as wealth. And it says specifically ten silver coins which again was not very much you see if if you saw a, a woman of the near middle east then uh, it, it would be a line uh, lot, lots of coins all strung together and, and 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 the precious stones precious metals and so on that were on her person 10 little tiny silver coins I put a suggestion to you that I cannot prove this, but I do not see any other reason for the way this parable unfolds. That there were such things in those days as very special necklaces. Necklaces that had a unique value, a very special worth to the one who wore them. And this was far more important than all the other uh, uh, jewelry and precious metals that hung upon her person. That they, they were necklaces given at a wedding, a, a, a necklace that was given at the making of covenant. When husband covenants with wife and declares his love, that love becomes symbolized, it becomes celebrated, it becomes actually present in little coins put around the neck. And I am suggesting very strongly that this was what we're talking about here, the ten coins were on a necklace around the neck of the lady. And it spoke of a special covenant relationship that she had with her husband. And it was given at a time of that covenant making around her neck. And so it isn't so much that it was a little silver coin. The value, the worth of that coin far exceeded its face value. In fact, there was a sense in which there could not be a value placed upon it because you, you couldn't add up so much money to be equal to it. This was a heart matter. And the value of that coin was in the heart, in the love of the husband to the wife and the wife receiving the love. Do you get my point? This little coin was valued far above its face value. It had a preciousness. It had a value that went beyond the metal 
that it was made of and, and what was stamped on the coin as it, it, its small value what was only 1% of the picture. The 99% of this picture is covenant love. And that, now I can understand why the woman takes such, what can I say, the consternation that she has lost it. There's been a break in the necklace. There's been a, a rip in the cord. And one of the coins has gone. She finds herself with a broken necklace, which amounted, in fact, to, in the minds of many of that day, a broken covenant. It's a disaster, you understand. She's lost one of the coins. And she could almost say, with all the jingle jangle of the metal that was hanging on her, she could simply say, one of the coins, because all others faded into insignificance compared with this coin, because of its part of something infinitely bigger than whatever it was worth. Just a coin. But when it is bound up with the gifting of the husband, when it has in it covenant love bonding, then it becomes a coin beyond all its apparent value. You could almost say it's not just a coin. Now, whatever the final truth is, if, if I'm off here, I'm not very much off because it's got to be something like that. This tiny coin that belonged to a special set of ten had unbelievable value to this woman. And so I'm going to stick with what makes sense to me because it's, it's all over the parable as I'll keep talking as we go through it. And it fits in with what Jesus is seeking to do. He's, he's telling this story in order to let the Pharisees know, as well as everybody else, the preciousness of everybody, and specifically because we're talking about them, these tax collectors, that though they seem to be as far away from God as a human can be, they're all together so precious, holding such value. That's what Jesus is saying here. You see, if you read through the New Testament, especially the Gospel of John, you will find that there was this, what can I say, one might call it covenant, certainly love action that took place within the Holy Trinity before there was time, before there was space, before creation. The Bible calls it before the foundation of the world. And in that, to reduce it to something I bottom line sort of thing and uh, very simple, the Father gave to the Son the honor of bringing forth 
the universe, creation, and specifically the creation and making of the human, you and I. And so you will find in Scripture that the Father is the Creator, but then very specifically it says that Jesus, the Word of God, is the Creator. And so He is the one who perfectly reflects the Father's will and purpose and design, and it is Jesus, the Son of God, who speaks in Genesis 1 and brings forth creation. He is the Creator, and of course the Holy Spirit too, for He hovers upon that which comes forth from the Word of the Son. But at the heart of it all is this, and I'll call it mystery, because it's really beyond our brains to conceive, but the Father gave the creation to the Son, and specifically He gave the human to the Son of God. I mean, let that sink in. The Scripture says, and I say especially John's Gospel, that you and I, we are the Father's gift to the Son. I mean, take that in. You are the gift of the Father to the Son. And when the Son created you, It revealed the glory of the Father and the glory of the Son. And of course, if if you are the gift of the Father to the Son, then your whole meaning to life, your life now orbits around the Son. He is everything. He's, again in Scripture, called the All and in All. He's the everything. He's the, it's called the firstborn of all creation, which is another Hebrew expression, which means he is infinitely number one. He's above all, before all, and so on. It tells us the meaning of being human is having a relationship to Jesus the Son because we were created not only by him but for him, and he is to live his life in us and we our lives in him we were created oh get this we were cre- you and i were created by the extreme love of the father in and to the son who in the love of father and son and spirit created you to elevate you Yes, you're human. You're made of the dust of the earth. And after death, we're reduced to that dust and blown away. And yet, and yet, and yet, we are created, elevated. The creature, the human, elevated to be part of the family of the Holy Trinity to fellowship with the Father as the Son does to live and move in the Holy Spirit you you have a value you have a worth that I say is infinitely, limitlessly beyond the dust minerals particles of which our body is made you are 
infinitely more than the chemicals and the electric forces and the atoms that make up our mortal frame. We are more than that. We are beings who were created and who are wired to actually be united to the Son and to join with God the Son in His dance and delight in God the Father. Oh, you are really somebody, you know. Do you realize the love that God the Father has for you? He so loved you, it says He gave His only Son. Now, just think about that for a moment. He is saying that in order to achieve your salvation, He gave His Son. What does that mean? Come on, stop being religious on me. Think of just the plain wonder of that. It is saying that the love the Father has for you is equal to the love that He has for Jesus, God the Son. For He says, to save you, I give my Son. That means my Son and you are... You understand? You see, uh, we, we look in the mirror and we see ourselves as the little silver coin. And, and, and we are, well, I mean, you could hardly put it. There, there is uh, a money worth. You can go to a decent pharmacy and purchase all of the stuff that makes up your mortality. And it would only be a few dollars, a very few. I mean, if we're talking about the stuff that we're made of, um, we're not very much. We, we don't amount to very much. Uh, our, our value wouldn't really make a big difference in a bank account. And yet, and yet there is a worth placed upon us. And what is that worth? It is a worth that is rooted in the love of the Father for the Son to whom He gave us as gift. It, it is the love of Son and Father in a covenant bond that can never be broken. And we are the celebration of that love, that covenant. I, I don't understand that. I know, I know enough to report it to you. I know enough to say that the way God loves me didn't begin yesterday, didn't begin the day I was born. The love that God has for me and for you began before there was time and space, began inside the heart of God. You are of such importance. You have such significance. Your worth, your value is beyond any monetary value. Yes, you, and I speak to some of you who might be living in a situation at the very bottom of the totem pole of your culture. As Jesus sat with the offscoring of humanity, I might speak to some of you in prisons, and, and, and uh, decent people avoid being with you, just as they did with the tax collectors. And yet God came in the flesh and sat down and ate with them to declare he was bound to them in a bond of covenant friendship. 
Oh, yeah. You're the little coin. You've got a face value, but your real value is in the heart of God that has placed a value, bestowed a worth. But now it says the the little coin was lost. It had been ripped off the cord of the necklace. It's in a state of broken offness. It's been separated from where it was so carefully placed. And not only separated as to have fallen onto a table, it, it, it fell far beyond the table, bounced off the chair, rolled into the stones that made up the floor and into the impacted dirt of those third world country floors and uh, gone, rolled under the furniture, slammed into a corner, covered in cobwebs, dirt, dark. I'm not just telling a dramatic story. It's all there in the parable if you read it slowly enough. Terrible. From being in the place of honor, the place, yes, of of glory, celebration around the neck of the woman, the place reserved only for the most precious stones, and that which you carry with honor, it's gone, ripped off. And now, all it's got left of that glorious place is a little hole in the coin which is the remembrance that once upon a time a cord went through there that held you in that place of honor but it but it, it, it all i've got left is the hole and and i can't really remember what the hole's for i'm in the dark i'm in blindness i i don't get it i don't see the dirt has covered me the cobwebs and the insects are all over me lost and hidden in the darkness see this is a parable and in the parable being lost was in a certain location down there on the floor in the dark under the furniture but for us being lost is not a location lost is not where you happen to find yourself lost is who we are And it speaks of a darkness. In fact, that's the common denominator of talking about us when we're lost. It is darkness, but it is a darkness not of the absence of the sun, but of the blindness of the eyes. So the sun still shines but our eyes don't see it. The light is actually all around us and all over us, but we don't see it. That's the darkness the New Testament speaks of. And it says that this darkness, this blindness, has a source, and that source is Satan. The hater of God and the hater of you. 
It says in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of those who do not believe. Blinded the mind. And so I can't think straight. I can't even remember who I am. I don't know who I am. I am a lost, you see. I'm in the dark. I am blinded. And, and you don't realize that when you're in the middle of this, you don't realize at all. In fact, you get very upset if people would suggest it. Because when human was blinded, remember in Genesis 3, Satan says, eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That is, throw God off. Get out of God's welfare system. Stop being a creature who receives everything from God. Tell him to get lost and do your own thing. You decide what's good for you. You decide what's evil. You're the master of your ship. Go for it, man. And maybe you've never heard what I just said. That's original sin, if that's what you want to call it. It's, that, that's, it's me, self for myself. That's exactly what it is. Instead of being one who is the receiver of God's life, I say, get lost to him. I'm finding life in me. And that, that produces a terrible darkness. And yet on that day when they did it, Satan says, eat of that tree and your eyes will be opened. You'll be the wisest creature on the planet. Lies, lies, lies. In the day they thus threw off God and became independents, on that day their eyes were closed and they entered into a fantasy, false, illusionary world of the darkness that they made up as they went along in that darkness. It's... It's our problem even after we come to know the truth in Christ. Our eyes are then opened. But it, it would appear there are areas of our life where they're not opened yet. Or we're, we're very slow to open our eyes. Because Paul writes to believers, believers, and says, I'm praying your eyes will be wide open. Open your eyes to... You might know the hope to which you'd be called. Know this incredible good news that, that you might know by experience the exceeding greatness of his power toward you. And so it's possible. It's possible that you listening to me right now, and it would be true to say that you know Jesus, you've called upon him, you have experience of him. But there are areas of life where you're half blind at least. And do, do, do you know, some others of you know, it's only when you see, when your eyes are open, you realize how blind you have been. Well, that is the way it is. And in that blindness and darkness, we have to keep on pretending that we can see. And also we've got our life and act together. And so it's a kind of double blindness because we put on a mask. 
we we put on a, a let's pretend sort of face that everyone will think that I'm an okay person. Of course, we change masks depending on the uh, company we're in. And sometimes uh, I would say, to, do you really, have you ever visited the person down there in the darkness, behind the masks? Have you ever found out who, who you really are? There's a certain hopelessness about the darkness. Satan, the lie, mocks us and, and for any arousing of trying to remember who we really are, trying to find a purpose beyond this existence in the dark. And, and the liar, Satan, the accuser, can hear his voice inside of you sometimes saying, get, get it, man, get it, this is life, get used to it. Yes, you're a coin, but all that thought you had about a, a woman and hanging in honor and glory around her neck, forget it. It, it. It's doubtful she ever existed, it's a legend, you're having bad dreams, forget it. And if, if there is such a woman, she doesn't care. Find your meaning here in the dark. Find your purpose right here down in the dirt with the spiders. The coin was lost. Do, do, do you see this? Do you feel it? This coin was made, fashioned. By, first of all, by, by an expert in metallurgy, some, someone who could take the silver and fashion it into the coin, but then taken from other silver coins and made a very unusual, uncommon silver coin to be part of a necklace around her neck. Around the neck. So, so close to the head and the face and the eyes and the lips, the neck, the place of honor, place of glory. So when you look at the face of the person, you see what is around their neck. It's the place of, I say it again, honor, in that it's used in the scripture to describe the place where, where there's prior to everything else, the the first, the first of all your jewelry, the first of all that you love is around your neck, you see. And so in Proverbs it says that you take the, the very being of God, his wisdom, his understanding and so on, and, and it says, and make it a, a necklace around your neck. And if this be that covenant necklace, then it was the very presence of the husband around the neck. It was the celebration of that ancient covenant. Yeah. And from that place, from that place, 
of just an existence that is inside the love of the husband and her woman, or as we have said, that mystery that we were created to live inside as the celebration, as the actualization of the love of the Father to the Son and the Son to the Father. And, and to refuse that. You know, if anyone's going to define what sin is, you'd have to, your first phrase would be, it is madness. You cannot find one sane explanation to sin. It is madness to refuse to be the beloved of the Father, to refuse to live in union with God the Son, who loved you and gave himself for you, to refuse the value and worth and significance that's bestowed upon you by the Father through the Son, and, and to seek to find value in yourself, into that little test tube of mud that would be your humanity, your mortal body. I mean, really. And of course, to so do would be the leap into the is not. Because such is impossible. There is no thing for the human outside of relationship to the Son, to the Father. Because that's the meaning of our creation, you understand. That's why we're here the meaning of it all and to fall I mean for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God do you understand it a bit better there does that make sense to this never ending search for purpose get up and go to bed with that nagging longing inside for a meaning that transcends going to work to earn the money to buy the bread to give you the strength to we know there's more and yet our blindness forbids us seeing that and we can feel that hole the coin had a hole in it where the necklace cord went through. But now there's no cord, there's no necklace. And the coin is left with a nagging hole that says once upon a time there was something more than this. There was something. You were made for something to do with that hole. But can't remember, don't know. I'm in the dark, I'm in the dirt fallen short and I no longer know who I am that, that's I mean that's the world system to make up meanings to our existence and because they are all doomed to failure the world system then constantly invents new medications to soften the pain of not knowing who I am or why I'm here. And I go into many church 
services only to hear what I already know, at least what the Satan has already told me, that you are not, you have not, you're no good, you're bad, and you're fit for judgment. Well, thank you. I had, a, I had an idea it was as bad as that. But the woman, the woman in the parable, the woman, how can I put this? Because the coin is lost does not mean it loses value. I mean, really, that's basic logic. If, if, you, if you have a 50-cent piece and it rolls off into the dirt and you lose it, doesn't mean it stopped being a 50-cent piece. It means that you will not be blessed by it, at least for a while. It means that it's out of circulation. But as to its value, as to its worth, that it is still... Its face value hasn't changed in the least. It might be covered in sticky dirt. So its face is completely hidden, but it's still 50 cent piece. And if it was a coin or something of the nature of what we're talking and had another value, a covenant meaningful value, that sure didn't stop. In fact... One could say, upon the loss of such a thing, we realize the depth of what it meant to us, and it becomes even more precious to us in its being lost. And this woman said it. She said it very plainly. She says that she has the ten coins, and one of them is lost. And then she called, when she finds it, she said, I found my coin, my coin, which was lost. There's a bond there. It being lost is something being ripped out of her heart. And she is not going to quit until she finds it and restores it to its place. I mean, look what she does. It says, Jesus remembers telling this story. He includes all these words for a very big reason. He says, she loses one gun. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, search carefully? Boy, he's piling it on there. Light the lamp. We're going into the dark. She's like a warrior. She's going to attack the house. She's going to sweep it, which means you've got to move all the furniture, put the light down there behind the sofa. Search carefully. <clears throat> not a stone unturned, not a piece of furniture unmoved. Every corner investigated with light. If you were the coin, you would hear these enormous noises of furniture moving. You would see shafts of light penetrating even your darkness. Oh, this woman means business. She means business. What is Jesus saying here? That the Holy Trinity is driven with passion to find this coin. You, 
and to restore the coin, restore you to the place of honor and glory for which created. There is a holy driving must. This coin must be found and it must be returned to its place. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit cannot, by His own being, He will not let you stay lost. You know, it's interesting for some, anyway, this word lost, it's the same word that is used in John chapter 3, verse 16, but the translators chose to use another word there to translate it. And I've never found out why, but you see, it says, For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. Whoever believed on Him should not, okay, and in everybody's memory book it is, perish. Whoever believes on Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That word perish is the same word in the language it was, all this was written in. It's the same word as lost here. So the woman lost a coin. And John 3.16, same word, but somehow it makes a big difference, you know. He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believed on Him should not continue to be lost, but rather participate in everlasting life. I like that. That's why Jesus came, so that we wouldn't continue to be lost. Jesus, Jesus coming to us is the no of God. God, Father, Son, and Spirit says, no, my precious human shall not continue to be lost. We go find them. And so the woman entered into, she, she went into, her hand went down there into the darkness, her hand went inside the dirt. She entered the darkness, she entered the dirt. She moved the furniture. She, she probed with the light. She's seeking. Have you ever thought of it? The God the Father sent. And of course, again, the New Testament's full of that. And the Father sent him. God is not locked in heaven. He's not the far above and beyond the remote disinterested God who started this whole jolly thing and is going to be there when it all collapses at the end. No. He is the God who came where we are, came into our situation, became totally involved. Could He become any more involved that He became one of us? And as the scripture said, he first loved us. He didn't wait for anybody in the human race to ask him to come. Any more than the coin sent up distress signals. No, he first loved us. He knew our value. He had bestowed it upon us. He first loved us. He takes the initiative. It's not about us trying to get God's attention. It's about Him seeking to get our attention. She did this. 
she did this this woman she did this and, and apart from or maybe it's bound up with it uh, uh, apart from the fact of what we've talked about the value she had placed upon the coin apart from that what how can I, what would she say to neighbors friends and to her husband when uh, they, they discovered that the necklace was broken, the coin was gone, and she had done nothing about it. Now, that's unthinkable. For, for, for the woman to hold the status of owning that, she has within her very being the kind of gal she is. It's a responsibility to keep it. Okay? That, in the rest of Scripture, is called the righteousness of God. God is true to his own standard of covenant love. Or you could say the God who is love is true to being love. He who is good is true to his goodness. God, for his own being, he is right according to his own right. Love fulfills love. God, because God is love and God is faithful to being God is love, cannot let you be lost. It is the must in the heart of God to come and find you and restore you. There's another phrase in the Old Testament that, that says, you know, for his namesake. And without touching any of those scriptures, for his name's sake is the same thing. He says he doesn't act, he doesn't save us for our name's sake, as if we deserve it or we did something, performed somewhere. No, it says for his name's sake, because his reputation, because of who he is, he's not going to let you die. Your salvation doesn't depend on your willpower to do a pretty good show. doesn't depend on you doing something that attracts the attention and the wow of God. Get used to this. You're, you're thinking like a, a self-for-myself human. Get an understanding. God acts because God is God. And God comes to us because uh, His name is Savior. His name is love. And He fulfills His name. That woman came for the coin not because the coin was trying to do hula hoops in the corner and get her attention it was because she's that woman and because this coin is part of the covenant love she's coming to get it it's who she is it's part of her her being and so it is the father sends the son the father sends Jesus into our humanness think of it the father sends his son the one who is the focus of God love I don't know I, it's beyond words the one who is the total focus of his love and his delight he now sends into our humanness which means that the same love with which he loved Jesus he now equates with us 
comes into our darkness. He comes into it, doesn't sit on the edge and say, there's a lot of darkness down there. He comes inside our hostility to God. He comes into our disobedience, our guilt, our shame. He gets into this, which to him who knew no sin, he comes into its horror, its corruption. And he lives inside our confusion, the dark negative mindset of the human comes into our brokenness comes into that meaninglessness, our separation or perceived separation from the Father, comes into our fear and anxiety, comes inside our death on the cross, comes inside a ruined human, blitzed human, and he unties all the knots of sin and lies and illusion that held us smashes the chains by which we were held he takes our false humanity our made up selves carries them into himself and brings them to crucifixion he recreates us in resurrection he makes us new and he brings us back to the Father. And we, he and us, for now we are one with him, are hugged with the bare hug of the Father as he weeps with joy upon us. Do you understand it? Jesus is the hand of God reaching into our lives from another world. And he brings light and he brings life to rescue us. The coming of Jesus to dwell among us, God in the flesh, is the moving of earth's furniture. It is the light of God inside our darkness. And the Holy Spirit takes all of that and brings it to bear upon you and upon me. He brings us home to the arms of the Father. Let, let me emphasize that very, very quickly. When she found it, that, that's a key to this whole chapter. The shepherd found the sheep. She finds the coin. Father finds the son. But the finding was not merely locating them. It didn't say anything. And this is ridiculous when you think about it. But of course, this is how some people think. That she can now say, well, I've located the coin. Know where it is. Now, I'll watch it from afar while it's down there in the dirt and the muck. That's, that's daft. No, to find the coin meant that it's right back there on the necklace where it was originally intended to be. It's not found until it's back there. Find means a complete restoration. When the father found the prodigal son, it meant the kid was sitting at the table at the feast in one of the father's robes and in his sandals um, didn't mean the father goes home and says well I met the kid out on the road he's doing pretty well he's got a tent you know halfway no find meant bringing them all the way finding the sheep meant around the neck that's interesting like the around the neck of the shepherd bringing it all the way home 
Look, I say to some of you listening, maybe for the first time, finding, Jesus finding you doesn't mean that he just forgave you your sin and now make the best of it, I'll see you in heaven. Finding means that he he unites with you so that you're in him and he's in you and he's carried you to the Father and right now you are in the presence of Father and Son and Holy Spirit and they delight in you and you are being fashioned and formed to the image of Jesus, a new creation which impacts every micro moment of your physical material existence. And of course it's all about you, as it's all about me. Because, she said, one coin. And I suppose you could have a necklace that each one was knotted. I suppose you could. Maybe she did. But the one coin. See, he says one sheep got lost. And you know if one sheep got lost, they all got lost. But he's only concerned with one. This is one coin fell off and got lost, just one. And then there were two sons, but he deals with them as one son that went to far country, and then further down he deals with one son who stayed home. It's one, 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 one. Because he's telling us he never deals with us en masse. He deals with you by name. He says even the hairs of your head are numbered. He deals with you as if you're the only person in creation. He finds you. He brings you back to the covenant place of the necklace. And then says, rejoice with me. And that word rejoice, yes, you know it, don't you? It means to leap in the air, spin around for limitless gladness and joy. That's what God does when he puts his hand on you. Well, i got to go. I trust this is used by the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to see who we truly are in Jesus. And now the blessing of God who is almighty love, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. His blessing penetrate your lives. Open your inmost eyes and bring you to the full knowledge who you truly are in this moment of time as you are seated with Christ in the heavenly dimension and to radiate that glory of love in all your physical material existence. So I bless you and declare that is the way it is.